that lyric, <clears throat> should suffering come my way, may I remember? You know, normally it is something like suffering that causes us to lose our way. But sometimes it's also prosperity. And this morning we're going to look at a text that's um, one that's had a powerful influence in many lives, including mine. About 35 years ago, I came to a church, not this one. There was an organist and choir director who had been there for decades. And in our conversation, he said to me that he was not a Christian. And I thought to myself, how can you play an organ and direct a choir for decades and not be a Christian? And I asked him, how and why? And you know what he said? He said, I love or I like God, know Him, but I'm not sure I think much about Jesus. And I asked him why, and he cited this text. Now you can say about this text what you can say about many. It is the heart of the Gospel. And in this text, Jesus tells a story that to the modern ear sounds very unfair. And yet, what He's saying, Jesus, what He's saying to us is, this is exactly how I operate. This is what the Kingdom of God is like. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them He said, Go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Going out again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, He went out and found others standing. And He said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to Him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, Go into the vineyard too. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in scorching heat. But the master replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. In 1946, there's a couple in a church in New York. They had lost their only son in the war, the Great War. And they had come to make a gift of a memorial to their own son. And to thank the Lord for giving them 23 years with Him. They got to the part in the service where they came forward, both of them, and they presented to the minister a check for $200. Now it's 1946. That same check would be worth $2,700 today. And as they're making the presentation and thanking God for the son that He's taken, Another couple is sitting near the back. They had a son who came back from the war about a year earlier. And so the woman, the mother, turns to her husband and says, how about if we make the same gift? Her husband said, are you crazy? Our son didn't die. His wife looks him in the eye and says, that's the reason I want to do it. To thank the Lord for bringing our son back. Do you understand that? Years ago, a young man, teenager, had a cell phone. They all do. He was in an old-fashioned drugstore, and he placed a call. And the druggist had some time on his hands, so he listened in on this phone call. The young man said, Hello, sir. I was just wondering, uh, could you use somebody to cut your grass and trim your hedges? Oh, you already have somebody doing that. Well, can I ask you, is he doing a good job? Oh, he is? That's wonderful. Thank you, sir. Thank you for taking the time to answer my questions. And with that, he hung up. The druggist looks at the young man and said, Son, I'm sorry you didn't get the job. The boy looks at the druggist and said, No, sir, I've got the job. I was just calling to see how I was doing. <laughs> and that's exactly what this young man who's rich is doing with Jesus. Matthew says he comes to Jesus with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And after some give and take and back and forth, Jesus makes it very clear what he must do. 
He said you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow Me. And Matthew says upon hearing that, the young man turned and left Jesus sorrowfully because of his wealth. And as he's walking away, the disciples of Jesus, who were stunned by this because they're Jews and they believed, even in Jesus' day, that if you're prosperous, it means God is favorable to you. So therefore, how can this rich guy walk away from Jesus? And how can Jesus say, tell him to sell everything and give it to the poor? And then Jesus makes this statement, Turning to his disciples, I tell you, it is easier for a rich for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And if you search the commentaries, you'll find some who say that there was in the city wall of Jerusalem a real small gate. It was narrow and it was short. And every great while, a camel who wants to go through that particular place can get down on his haunches and sort of shimmy through. And while that may be true, and while that is clear speculation, it totally misses the point. And the disciples know it. Jesus says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they all miss it. And the reason they all miss it is because Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we've left everything. What's in it for us? Have we done enough? You see, Peter is no closer to grasping the truth of what Jesus is saying than that man who walked away. One time R.C. Sproul was standing in front of a, a group of doctoral students and he asked one question. He said, are you saved by works? And everybody that answered that question that day said, no, we're not saved by works. And R.C. Sproul was apoplectic. He went ballistic. One time Harry Callis, the voice of the Philadelphia Phillies, was talking about Gary Maddox, the outfielder, and he said, here's a man who's changed his life. He used to be miserable and depressed. Now he's depressed and miserable. And Jesus would understand it. And so would every disciple of Jesus. By this time, they've walked with Jesus almost three years. They've seen Jesus radically transform lives. They've seen Him raise dead people to life. They've seen Him take blind eyes and allow them to see. He's taken lame people and enabled them to walk. The disciples know that Jesus can do the impossible. And yet, their eyes are fixed totally on themselves and their own doing. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. Is that good enough? What's in it for us? Now, there are those who say that this is a rhetorical question. That Peter just asked the question, but he didn't expect an answer. And I say to that, that's, how do you know? Because Jesus gives a plainer, fuller answer to this question than almost any other question He was asked. 
Jesus answers this question not only prosaically in prose for three verses, 28 to 30, He also speaks parabolically in a parable. He not only tells them the plain truth, He also illustrates it in a story. So that organist and choir director 35 years ago, you're not a Christian. How could you do what you've been doing for months or for years? He said, don't get me wrong, I believe in God, I just don't think much of Jesus. I said, why? He said, that story. Remember the one about the guy who goes out and hires workers at four different times of the day and then pays them the same thing? That's crazy. That's wrong. I don't buy it. And yet, that's exactly why Jesus tells us this parable. He's answering Peter's question. What's in it for us? I want to dig into this story and see the answer to that because the answer to those disciples is the answer He says speaks to us today. First, notice Jesus says there's a relationship. Look at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning and hired laborers for his vineyard. Now notice something. These workers don't apply for the job. They have no resume. They didn't seek a position in the vineyard. What happens is the master gets up early. He goes out on the street and he finds workers and he hires them. Now every time Jesus tells a parable, it's important to ask this question. Who are the actors? Who who is He talking about? Well, the master of this story is God. The laborers are us. And the vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is saying is, no one gets into the vineyard, no one gets to eternity, no one gets into eternal life unless the master has gotten up early in the morning and he's found you. You see, that's the difference between Christianity and every other religious system. Every other religious system is a person's attempt to get to a holy God. The Bible is clear. It is God who does the seeking. If you know Jesus Christ today, and you have even a modicum of love for Him, it's because He has found you. And the relationship He's established with you is not based on you before, during, or after. It's based on Him. It's His integrity. It's His work. All you must do in order to be qualified is recognize that you're totally unqualified. C.S. Lewis once said, There are those who find comfort in believing and thinking about their love for God, not me. I derive comfort from one person's love. It's God's love for me because that doesn't change. Second, notice not only do we have a relationship, we have rights. Look at verse 4. And to them He said, Go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I'll give to you. Now remember, He's talking about the second group He hires at nine in the morning. He's hired the first group at 6 in the morning. He says to the group at 9, the same thing He said to those at 6, I will pay you what I determine to be right. Now my friend, the organist and choir director, that was his rub. 
He didn't think it was right to pay someone who would work three hours less the same that you paid someone who worked the whole day. And the reason he thought that was because he's an American. Living in the 20th century with HR people and resumes and curriculum vetoes. You don't have to know Greek, but you can check this one word. The word used for laborer here, that word in Greek means the lowest rung on the class system in Jesus' day. If you were a laborer, you were lower than a slave. You see, slaves who were slaves became the members of a household of the Master. These guys aren't members of any household. They are beggars. They have no union. They have no skills that they've derived from experience or education. They bring nothing to the table except their own deprivation and perhaps a strong back. They live without rights. They live hand to mouth. They live in imminent danger of starvation. They're always at the mercy and the whim of the marketplace. And the reason we know it is not only the definition of the word labor, but the way Jesus tells the story. The master goes out at 5 o'clock and quitting time is 6, and he hires a group of people and he says, I'll pay you what I determined to be right. Exactly what he said to all the other groups. It's a perfect indication of their own desperation. They've stood on the street for 11 hours. They're looking and hoping beyond hope that someone would come along and just give them a little bit, a little pittance. But look what the Master says. I will give you what I determined to be right. 200 years ago in Olney, England, a man died, and he, when he died, he had preached to thousands. He had composed... 349 hymns. And yet before he died, he said, when I die and you erect my tombstone, I want you to write this on it. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slave traders in Africa, who by the rich mercy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach a faith He had so long labored to destroy. Two weeks before He died, a good friend came to Him and said, John, don't you think it's time to quit preaching? He said, what? Shall an old African blaspheming slave trader stop while he still has breath? My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things how great a sinner I am, and how much greater my Savior Jesus is. You see, Newton understood who he was. He wasn't a slave. He was a laborer. He was a poor, lowly beggar. And the Master came to him one day and said, I will pay you whatever I determine to be right. You see, he knows the answer to Peter's question. It's God who establishes the relationship with us, and it's God who determines what is rightly ours. And then third, notice the respect. Look at verse 13. 
But the master replied to one of them, Friend, am I doing you, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? These are street people. These are hired hands. The only reason they have work that day is because the Master had grace upon them. And look what Jesus says the Master paid him. A denarius. You know what a denarius was? It was a full day's wages for a, an excellent carpenter. It was at the highest of the pay scale on a per diem rate. These guys aren't getting minimum wage. They're getting a denarius. Very few people in Jesus' day would ever receive a denarius unless they were a highly skilled craftsman. And so they get this incredible payout. And what do they do? They talk among themselves. Hey, wait a minute. I work longer than you. That's not fair. I don't like this. He's a crook. And they become incensed. They're just like that rich man. They're just like Peter. They're just like that choir director and organist. They're just like the commentators who are hung up on camels. They have an exclusive grasp of the horizontal. They're good at seeing people and making decisions. And the reason they're good at it is because they have a practice of only looking at themselves. I hear it all the time. That's not fair. I can't believe you allowed that to happen. This is me you're talking about. After all I've done. You know, if I were the master, I would have said, fair, you want fair, you'll never work again. But you know what the master says? Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to a denarius? Hear what he calls him? He calls him friend. I would have called him complaining lowlifes. I call them jealous suckers. You know what the word friend here means? It's not the same word in Greek that Jesus uses when He says to His disciples in John 15, I no longer call you servants but friends. There, that word means loved ones, beloved, kissed ones. This word friend is best translated comrade or fellow man. And what He's saying is, friend, you're just like me. He's equating Himself to these street beggars. He's condescending to them. To their level. And He's raising them up with a sense of dignity and respect they've never known. This Master who is wealthy calls these He's just found friends. Do you see this? He's not lording it over them. He doesn't ignore them or spurn them. The reason He reasons with them like a friend would with someone the friend respects and values. And then fourth and finally, notice the rule. Look at verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You know, you go and you ask... You, I don't, you won't do it, but I'll tell you anyway. It's rhetorical. You go to somebody to this week and you say... Do you believe in God? They'll say 98%. Yes, I do. You say, well, tell me what He's like. Oh, He's love. What's love like? What do you mean love? What's that mean? And almost everybody will be silent. And then if they talk, they'll say, well, love means to care for someone. It means to give them stuff. It be to bless 
people, houses, land, health, prosperity, family, friends. You know, the Bible says God is love. There's only four descriptive words it uses to describe God. Love, light, spirit, and all-consuming fire. But the one the Bible talks about most is love. And it always the Bible always defines it. Love is this. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and He sent His own Son as a payment for our sin. In other words, God is grace. God's always gracious. One of the first times I really began to see this was in college. I was a freshman. I took those tough courses like sociology. <laughs> yeah. No trig for me, baby. And our professor, this guy's name was Stan Gady. And amazingly, he's still there. And he had been teaching at that institution for about five years, and I never knew this story until a couple of years ago when I read about it. He had been teaching at the school for five years or so, and there was a family reunion. He had a cousin who was just turning 16. His name was Paul. And so after dinner, Stan says to Paul, hey, do you want to go for a ride? I'll drive some, then you. Paul said, yeah. He did it for a couple of reasons. He wanted to drive, he wanted to get out of the house, but also... Stan had a really hot car. And so they go out and Stan's driving and they're on the back roads and, and they're going pretty fast. They come up over a rise and all at once a head-on collision. Stan has to be life-flighted into Boston. He's in intensive surgery for uh, 12 hours. Broken ankle, broken uh, leg, and broken jaw. For five days, four, three days, he's in intensive care. He comes in and out of consciousness. And every time he comes to, he thinks to himself, how's Paul? I wonder how Paul is. But he can't speak because his, his mouth is wired shut and his tongue is so swollen he can't even voice anything. So on the fourth day, he gets news that Paul has died. In fact, he was dead at the scene. And Stan said, when I got that news, I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. All I could do is lie there and weep. I'd killed my cousin. And I wish it had been me. A few hours go by and he gets other, another word that creates panic. He gets the word that his aunt and uncle are coming to see him, Paul's parents. He said, I really wanted to die then. I didn't want to face them. But what could I do? I was simply lying there. He said, when they came in the door, I knew something was obviously different because they both had these wide smiles on their face and they came to my bedside and they took my hands and my, my aunt bent over and said, Stan, you're our son now too. And he said it was 43 years ago that I heard my aunt say that to me. Stan, you're our son now too. 
They're words I never expected to hear. They're words I didn't deserve to hear. They were words of pure, unconditional grace. Peter asks, what's in it for us? And the answer is, what's in it for you is exactly what's in it for every laborer. Pure, unconditional, unadulterated grace. Do you know that why that woman turned to her husband and said, let's us give money too? Because she gets grace. She understands it. And the reason she gets it and understands it is because God's opened her eyes to see it. You see, grace is never earned by the person who receives it. It's only earned by the giver. And that's why Sproul went ballistic. Are you saved by works? If you're saved, you are saved by works. But it's not your works, it's Jesus' works. You can't invent those works. You can't achieve those works. You can't go out and get those works. You can't do anything. But simply recognize who you are. A laborer. A beggar. And when God gives you grace, it's always a gift. And you know something about the gift? It always flows in one direction. And that's always downhill. That's why of all the hymns John Newton wrote, the one that's most famous and most loved is Amazing Grace. You see, he understood. What's in it for you and me? Just about everything we can ever imagine and never deserve. Think about that. Amen.